Hello, I'm Andrew Neil, and this is The Backstory, a series of in-depth interviews with people who have the power to shape events and to influence our understanding of them. In this episode, I'm joined by a man at the apex of journalism and the establishment. Educated at Eton and Cambridge, Charles Moore was editor of the Daily Telegraph and is Margaret Thatcher's official biographer. He now sits in the House of Lords as Baron Moore of Edgingham. During the interview, we talk about his relationship with Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister's character and beliefs, and those of the Conservative Party he leads. We also discuss the role journalists play in our democracy and some of his own deeply held Conservative views. This is the backstory from Tortoise. So, Charles Moore... Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Good, bad, or indifferent? Um, Could it be both of the first two? You tell me. (laughs) That would be my uh, hunch, my sense. Okay. In what way good? Uh, Well, I think Boris was the only person who could bring about the necessary change, and he did a series of phenomenal things. Um, uh, He became the leader. He achieved Brexit, uh, and he won the election with something close to a landslide. And I don't think anybody else could have done that. I also think that the cliche about making the right major decisions is is true to some extent. So, um, uh, for example, I think obviously about the vaccine and uh, to a lesser extent about how to get out of COVID. Um, and I also think right now uh, very much in the right on Ukraine. And in what way bad? Um, well, he, he can be very indecisive and hopping around about an issue uh, and sort of backing and filling about it so that um, he inspires uh, a lack of confidence sometimes. Mr Johnson worked for you when you were editor of the Daily Telegraph. Did you ever imagine him then to be prime minister? Well, it, it did cross my mind because he was already interested in politics and he stood for a hopeless Welsh st- seat in uh, 1997, for which I gave him permission to to stand. Um, and then when he'd gone to The Spectator, I had a sort of funny conversation with him um, because uh, in order to become editor of The Spectator, he'd assured Conrad Black that he would not try to become a parliamentary candidate. And then he rang me up and said... Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to become, see if I can become the parliamentary candidate for, I think, uh, Henley, Michael Heseltine's seat. Um, and, uh, you know, Conrad won't like this. What do you think? And it was a lot of sort of Borisian hedging around and moving back and forth and things. And um, I said, um, well, come on, Boris, please tell me what you want so that I can understand why you're making this call and um, how I can be helpful or not helpful. And... Um, and he said, well, I want to have my cake and eat it, which was, of course, the classic exposition of... Um, <laughs> um, and so he duly did. So I did know, Andrew, yes, that he... I didn't always know that he would end up um, in politics. You know, he, he had a very good journalistic career and um, uh, it was always possible that he would stay in that. But I, I did, I think, know that his greatest ambitions were in politics. Right. Ambitions in politics, one thing. But did you see him as prime ministerial material? Um to be honest, I can't remember exactly what I thought about that, but um, my overall sort of theory of Johnson from the very first time I met him until the present day is that he's both a bit of a nightmare and a bit of a genius. 
and therefore um, he it was never impossible for him to attain um, you, you know very high positions or do very amazing things and that's why I've tended to go against the trend when people say oh he's had it he's finished um, all that sort of thing um, his capacity to see how to do things in a different way from other people and succeed in that is very remarkable and though he's very sort of sensitive and touchy in a way he's also got the height of a rhinoceros and and great sort of physical and mental energy so um he has all those qualities when he worked for you could you trust him this sounds a bit casuistical but i would say that i could trust him to do his job very well um i couldn't rely on him in the sense of you know would his copy be on time would every fact be accurate um no i certainly couldn't rely on him but um I felt that I had working for me someone who I was very glad to have working for me. When he was considering running for Mayor of London, you joked that he'd be more suited to being Mayor of Henley. <laughs> I'd forgotten. But you ba- I'd forgotten you backed that. Him, <laughs> you, you backed him nevertheless as Tory leader and uh, as Prime Minister. What, what changed from Henley to Downing Street? Well, I can't remember why I made that joke, but... Um, <laughs> it's a good joke. Um, uh, but, I, um, uh, but actually, he was well suited to being mayor of London. Um, I think in some ways he has real leadership qualities because uh, in some ways he clearly doesn't, and I'll come to that, but um, in some ways he really does because he has great communicative gifts and imaginative gifts and a way of making people feel good about things rather than bad about things. These are all actually very rare gifts and they're essential gifts of leadership at all times in history and particularly in modern times because of modern communications. So... um, uh, it's a sort of transformative thing and it's an act. I'm very interested by the whole business in modern life about how a sort of actor person can be a real leader. Ronald Reagan would be an early example. Um, Boris is another. And of course, um, Zelensky is a third. And um, I, I think there's a really, they're not ridiculous, discreditable gifts. They're real gifts. And I think Boris has them uh, and, and a certain eloquence that goes with it. In your magisterial biography of Margaret Thatcher, you write about her occupying, quote, the moral high ground in her policies and her actions. When we look at what happened in Downing Street during the lockdown and look at Mrs. Thatcher claiming the moral high ground, wasn't it typical of the Prime Minister's cavalier approach to many matters that in the depths of the lockdown, he allowed Downing Street to be turned into party central? Um, I think it was typical of him in a way. Um, And uh, it was a sort of to do with the sort of sloppiness or carelessness which he has about rules and processes and that sort of thing. But I don't think it was as serious a wrong as many people have said. And I think it goes with something which is good, which is, in my view, all successful prime ministers... I'm not saying this in itself was good. It wasn't. It was bad. But all successful prime ministers have a capacity to reach out over the heads of bureaucracy, government, officialdom, and have a direct community, communicative power with people in general. And I think that was true of Mrs. Thatcher in a very different way, true of Tony Blair, um, and true of Boris, and you know, not true, for example, of Gordon Brown or Theresa May. So um, I think that's... You, you sort of... If you're going to accept Boris, which I readily understand why a lot of people don't, you, you have to sort of take both sides of this coin. It would never have happened under Margaret Thatcher in Downing Street, though, would it? 
I'm sure it wouldn't. Not least because um, there was incredibly few people working in Downing Street in those days. What you have now is a sort of slum of spads and so forth, hundreds of them literally, you know, all overexcited and crowding around and working on 24 uh, news cycles. I think it's four times bigger than her number 10. Mind you, Mrs Thatcher had very nice parties in number 10, formal ones, but also sort of, you know, working all night on a speech, come and have a drink with me, and she'd even cook simple Marks and Spencer meals for her unlucky speechwriters. When do you trace the decline in the Prime Minister's recent fortunes? Is it Partygate or is it more than that? Oh, I think it's definitely more than that. Um, I think uh, all these disputes about the parties... um, just sort of crystallise um, some sort of anger. I don't think they're at the bottom of it at all. I think it's a sense that um, we've had a terrible time with COVID and we're not out of the woods and um, it's not clear where we're going. And of course, uh, in particular, though perhaps 90% even or 80% of this is not Boris's fault in any way, um, uh, you know, the cost of living is exploding, real inflation is returning, um, and there's a very uncertain global situation. So everybody's nervous, um, you know, upset, um, uneasy. Some, indeed more than some, many trace the beginning of the slide to his efforts to stop your friend Owen Patterson, uh, MP, or then MP, being sanctioned for breaking parliamentary rules. Uh, Did you play a part in that? Did you urge the Prime Minister to step in, support the Prime Minister to step in and try and help Mr Patterson? I certainly did. Um, And I wrote a a column about it in The Telegraph um, advocating this because I felt that, and I feel still, that the process by which MPs are judged in this situation is highly unjust um, and that Owen Patterson was a victim of that. Um, I don't think, um, however, that it had anything much to do with Boris's fortunes, except for one important point, which is that um, it really annoyed a lot of his backbenchers because of the mishandling of the the sort of management of parliamentary opinion. But it resulted in Mr Patterson uh, having to step down as MP, not just be sanctioned, but essentially to leave Parliament. It resulted in a by-election and a safe Tory seat, which the Tories lost In, in retrospect. Was it not bad advice? No, because I wasn't advising um, uh, uh, the Prime Minister on how to handle the House of Commons on the matter. I was arguing for the injustice of the process uh, to which Owen Patterson was subjected and to which people are still objected, uh, 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 subjected. I think that um, the way the House of Commons has handed over many of its affairs to bureaucrats instead of making decisions for itself is anti-democratic um, and threatens the independence of Parliament. And... Uh, it's not right and it's not fair. You've known Boris Johnson for many years. Do you know what he stands for? Well, it's an interesting question, Andrew. And um, of course, they are jolly vague. Um, however, I do think I would characterise them in. A, I do think they have a a character, and I would say essentially, he's in favour of freedom, and he's in favour of 
individualism and he is against bureaucracy and uh, officialdom and he is patriotic in a sort of rather vague but real sense so that um, he has a sense of what it is to be British um, and a pride in that and a sort of pleasure in it. One of the things I like about him very much is how he takes pleasure in all sorts of British things Um, and one of the great qualities of British life of course is humour and he possesses that and most of his opponents um, most dismally don't. Would it not be fair to describe him, unlike Mrs Thatcher, as a big government conservative? Well, um, ideologically, I would say not. Um, I would say Boris has used big government opportunistically rather than ideologically. He has seen that big government would help in certain situations. And, and by the way, I suspect he's right, broadly speaking, in relation to handling the economy during COVID. I think that you had to have uh, the sort of interventions that Rishi Sunak um, introduced and which Boris uh, warmly supported. And if you had had a a sort of usual small-c liberal conservative standing back from all of that by government, people would have become very angry and frightened. I mean, they became angry and frightened anyway, but I think they would have been even more so. So I don't criticise Boris for that. What I do criticise him for on all of this is a sort of it's to do with his sloppy mindedness. He can he thinks public money can buy buy your way out of all sorts of situations, um, and it's part of having your cake and eat it, eating it, and all that. So he's very very bad at rigor, and that includes financial rigor. I understand the point that, uh, like war, the pandemic produced big government, and that it needed a big government response. That's right. But if you but there is a kind of halo effect that is continuing for big government, as happened after the Second World War too. And if you look at even under this Tory government, if you look at what they're planning for the future, we're heading towards the highest tax bur- burden since the post-war Labour government hmm. of Clement Attlee. Uh, we've got the government intervening in all manner of things, and we've got record inflation. I mean, it's very different from the Thatcherite formula of low taxes, limited government and low inflation. It certainly is. And on the whole, it's worse. But I do think the situation is is different and worse. Um, and so it's harder to apply pure Thatcherite remedies. And I would say about Mrs. Thatcher that she wasn't ideologically rigid to anything like the extent that people think or indeed to the extent that she liked to project. Um, because she wanted always to be shown as a politician of conviction, so-called. But she was, in fact, pragmatic. You know, famously, she did introduce a windfall tax, for example, (laughs) uh, early on in in her career. On on the banks, yeah. And um, uh, so, um, but in relation to Boris, I would say um, that he hasn't got, my criticism would not automatically be that he's, been spending big, but that he hasn't really got a sense of direction about this and a sort of a sense of a way through it. Um, I think Mrs. Thatcher was a genius at the popularization of certain economic ideas and a sense of direction about them. And direction in economics is very important because it's all, that has, it has a huge effect on market confidence. It's all about what's going to happen next as well as what's happening right now. Um, and we haven't got that from this government collectively. And that must be... Um, uh, in part, at least, a defective leadership. One of the things she popularised, indeed promoted, was uh, owning your own home. 
particularly for social groups that had never been able to own, afford to own their own homes before. And this is not just a problem for Boris Johnson, it's been a problem for Theresa May and David Cameron uh, before her, that after 12 years of Tory government, home ownership is in decline, and even quite affluent young folk can't afford to own their own homes. I mean, isn't that a, a time bomb underneath the Tories' electoral opportunities? It certainly is, and it has been, as you're suggesting, for many, many years, actually. Um, uh, part of it is that many of the Tory uh, hardcore supporters have a massive interest in the existing equity of their houses and therefore are NIMBYs, which is sort of very understandable in personal terms, but is socially very bad. Um, and so it's very, very difficult to build houses um, and therefore it's very expensive to buy them because there aren't enough of them. And that's a sort of, uh, while at the same time it's been curiously easy, dangerously easy to borrow the money, it's been uh, absurdly expensive to buy the house. Um, and so you see it's, it's a very bad combination. And nobody's been able to, uh, no party has been able to answer this question. I think Mrs. Thatcher was able to do a lot with it because she had a sort of politically very bold, but nevertheless, they were low-hanging fruit council houses. Um, there they were. They were being poorly run. Um, you could quite easily see a way of doing this, which was not financially disastrous um, for anyone. Indeed, it was um, beneficial for the Treasury. Um, and uh, off you go. And um, uh, I don't quite see how that could be replicated in modern times, but we're, we're certainly getting into a worse situation about this than progressively worse, and we have done for a long time now. Are you comfortable with a Conservative Party that's becoming less middle-class South and more working-class North? No, I think that's a good thing, broadly speaking. And um, I think it's a really a, in related to the Brexit effect. Um, I think the Conservative Party is in a very bad place if it um, is the party of only of the people who've succeeded. I think the genius, or historic genius of the Conservative Party is for the people who've succeeded, the people who want to succeed, and the people who seek security because they're, they're not necessarily all that likely to gain great prosperity. It's a strange coalition. And, um, and of course, it pulls in different directions because one lot is more protectionist than another and so on. But I think it's very powerful as a national force. And somehow, at its best, the Conservative uh, party has kept these different forces in balance. I think it was a great problem with David Cameron, who did produce some useful modernization to the Conservative Party, but I think it was a great problem that he was uh, too much the voice of the sophisticated South. Um, and people began to feel highly disconnected with that sort of uh, government. And it contributed to why they voted for Brexit. And I, I, I think that... Um, the sense of disempowerment um, was very dangerous and to some extent is remedied by Brexit. But of course, then you have to work out what the next steps are and that, that is quite confused. Well, it will make, I would suggest, for a very different sort of party, a, a party less wedded to the interests of the home counties, of the middle class, of the upper middle class in the South, a party keener on social and welfare spending because the Red Wall likes government spending, and perhaps even more taxes on the rich. Um, it might do that, and, and I think um, there are dangers there, certainly. But I think you do need to think about um, uh, the 
relationship between most voters um, and the and the country in which they live and the people who govern them. And I think a dangerous separation had has emerged, which um, it's good for the Conservatives to try to uh, uh, prevent. And they've outmaneuvered Labour on that, though, um, you know, right now it's not looking very good for them. It's not, but it's still not looking very good for Labour, interestingly. And I think one aspect of this which has been underthought about is the whole aspect of what's sometimes called wokery. Um, because there's a danger, which even the Tories suffer from, of being um, uh, woke. Um, and this is very foolish of them if they wish to um, reach citizens in general. I think that on the whole, the best policy for the Conservatives would be to be economically liberal and socially conservative. When I say socially conservative, I mean conservative with a small c, obviously, and I also do not mean authoritarian. I do not mean endless laws trying to lock up people who say the wrong things or um, uh, you know, are being persecuted for private habits or anything like that. But I mean a, a certain care about social habits, social institutions, um, uh, the family and so on, rather than um, uh, libertarianism or, on the one hand, or authoritarian, authoritarianism on the other. And I think this hasn't been conceptualised properly by the Conservative Party. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about how a party more dependent on the red wall, less dependent on the blue wall of the South, might change. One way, it, another way it might change is it might also become less Old Etonian. Would that be a bad thing? It wouldn't be a bad thing or a good thing. It would depend on who the Etonians were. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, we've had a very wide range uh, historically of uh, old Etonians who ran the country. And, um, you know, some of them were very great radicals like Gladstone. Um, and some of them were sort of traditional middle of the road conservatives like Macmillan or Cameron. And some of them were sort of 
almost scallywags like um, like Boris. So um, I'm not sure you can make a generalisation. Well, you're an old Etonian. Uh, why do you think they still, in the 21st century, dominate public life so much, uh, much more than the products of any other public school? Um, well, I don't know that they really dominate public life to a very great extent, but to the extent they do, I would put forward a proposition which is very, very obvious, but um, nobody seems to notice because everyone sees these things in class terms, is that it's a very good school. But it's not, a, it, it's not alone being a very good school, among pub, even just among public schools that are very good public schools. No, it's not. It's certainly not. But it is the best and it's the biggest. And um, uh, traditions feed on themselves. So if you... Um, I very no, it's very noticeable, I found, when I was at Eton, and I imagine, I think, I keep up with it a bit, I think it's the same, what tremendous emphasis was given, not in any formal training way, but as a sort of approach to life about being able to argue and speak in public and present things and expound things uh, in classes, in the recital of poems by heart when you were a little boy, which you had to do, sometimes reciting poems in Latin, um, uh, in debating societies, political societies, um, uh, it's um, very much sort of in the blood. And it's a bit... So saying why why is Eton in, important in public life? Why does it produce people who do a lot of things in public life? It's a bit like saying, why does Newmarket produce good jockeys? It's because it's already done it and because it continues very strongly to um, uh, 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 to develop the traditions. If it were as sort of snobbish and exclusive as people imagine, why would it continue to do well i think it would fade and rightly fade um so that though it has though it has a reputation for being aristocratic it's actually it must be in such a competitive world and i mean world not just britain um it's actually rather meritocratic there was a time when it did fade i mean when, when alec douglas hume an old Etonian prime minister who had taken over from harold macmillan an old Etonian prime minister who himself had taken over from another old Etonian, Anthony Eden, when Alec Douglas Hume lost to Harold Wilson's Labour Party in 1964, there followed 33 years in which not only had no Prime Minister gone to Eton, not one had gone to public school. And yet here we are in the 21st century where the old Etonians have made this amazing comeback. Why do you think that's happened? Well, I, I do have part of an explanation for that, which is the abolition of the grammar schools. Um, it, the um, when I was at university in the uh, late seventies, we were just switching over um, to um, having uh, pupils from comprehensive schools rather than grammar schools, and we were also switching over to have uh, more women at the university, which was grossly in favour of men at the time in in terms of the balance. Um, and these two things meant because obviously more. Working-class women were even less likely than working-class men to um, go to university at that time. Um, these two changes meant that you, you re-empowered the upper-middle classes and you cut off the incredibly good opportunities for people from working-class backgrounds rising through grammar schools. This was a great social and educational disaster from which the country has not recovered. Um, and so the schools that were sort of what you might call continuously good which were the main public schools to a large extent and some of the grammar schools that became independent, were at an enormous advantage and the comprehensives were at an enormous disadvantage. And to a large extent, that's um, 
remained, and that is the fault of, in my view, largely the fault of comprehensivization. It just had lower educational standards, much lower educational standards. Um, and, you know, you're not allowed to say this, really, because um, it causes so much upset and very difficult subject for political parties, because obviously, since most people um, have children have to go through the comprehensive system, they don't wish to think very understandably that it's that it's bad. But as a system, it is bad, though, of course, there are many good comprehensives. I think this has improved with time. I think Michael Gove did some good work in improving state schools, and I think the future might be better. But we've had an absolutely dismal period, which has offered advantage. Unfortunately, a very good education has become a rarity, and that helps to explain why Etonians, um, who have had a good education, uh, may do disproportionately well. Now, you were appointed to the House of Lords... Uh, it makes you a politician now as well as a journalist. Well, I would dispute uh, that, actually. <laughs> I'm a legislator, but well, I don't think that makes me a yeah. politician. Well, you make laws for us. Yes, but, uh, that, no, but I, don't think that's a right, I don't think that's a right... That's, no, I don't think it's a right description. That's, that's what politicians do. No, but, no, but it, you don't have to be... That is what politicians do, but you don't have to be a politician to be a legislator. So, for example, um, you know, the former Lord... Uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, or the former head of the Foreign Office or the former head of the police, whatever, they're not politicians. They sit in the House of Lords, but they're not politicians. Well, these days, the Archbishop of Canterbury or Archbishops of Canterbury seem to be more politicians than religious leaders. <laughs> well, I would uh, rather sorrowfully agree with you. <laughs> anyway, my point was that one of the important purposes of journalism is to hold those in power to account so how can it be right to accept the honours handed out by those that we're paid to scrutinise? Um, well, I think each person who accepts them sort of needs to answer for themselves on this point. Um, my answer is, in my case, that um, I didn't want a peerage which um, linked me to a political party uh, because then people think, though actually this isn't really true, but they do tend to think that you're only saying something because your party wants you to say it. It's not really true in the House of Lords because the whipping system doesn't really work, but that's an understandable thing that people think. So when I uh, looked into this and, and found I could become what's called non-affiliated, um, I thought that would be a reasonable way to deal with the problem. But I guess my point is that we know government, not just this government, all governments, use the honour system to buy people off, reward people, uh, deal with politicians whose main political career is now over. Uh, it, surely it's our job to monitor, scrutinise, critique all that and not be part of it. Um, well, I, I agree with the first part. I don't particularly agree with the second part, depending on certain qualifications. There's a long tradition in this country, even in the House of Commons, let alone the House of Lords, uh, of people being active writers and journalists while they're in it. And I think that's on the whole good because um, I think it helps the conversation and it sort of widens the thing out. I've, I've felt under no pressure whatever to um, uh, alter any views because I'm a peer. But, but does it make you now a member of the establishment rather than a journalist? Is being in the establishment are more important than being an independent journalist? I think not because um, uh, because I am an independent peer. I'm not. I don't see myself as any any constraint. I would see it more as an extension of, um, you know, the capacity to debate issues and um, 
uh, play a part in things and meet people who are important in making decisions and all that sort of thing. So I don't find it difficult. Um, I, I see that in theory it can be criticised, but I don't find it difficult. And I think it's quite a good thing that so long as we have this system, I mean, there are very strong arguments against the House of Lords, but it exists. Um, and I think uh, that um, while it does, it's perfectly reasonable to do what I'm doing. You've sometimes, though, seemed keener to protect the establishment than expose it. Uh, at the height of the Diana Charles troubles in the 1990s, the early 90s, you argued that journalists should deploy, your word, hypocrisy and concealment when it came to the royal family. Is that still your view? Well, you have a better knowledge of my f- previous thoughts than me, Andrew. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember what I uh, said at the time in the Mel- Williams words that I've um, written. But I think that journalists... You said it live on television. Uh, very good. I'm probably arguing with you, actually. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was there. <laughs> but um, but um, Hypocrisy. We should be hypocritical. We shouldn't expose what's going on. We should well, the point, be involved in concealment, the, you said. The, the, the point that um, I would maintain, as I don't remember fully the context, but the point I would maintain is we should, in certain circumstances, respect privacy. Privacy is a very import, important part of every human life, and journalists do violate it. Sometimes they violate it rightly because it's really in the public interest and other times wrongly, and there are some areas where these things are highly disputable, and royal matters are one of them. You believe in civilised discourse and debate. You said that's what was uh, taught at Eton. But you can be pretty acerbic and personal in your writing. You said, for example, Olivia Colman, the actor, had, quote, a left-wing face. What does that even mean? (laughs) Um, I was surprised that this caused such upset. It seems to me demonstrably the case that some people have faces which reflect their opinions. I mean, I think there's such a thing as a conservative face and a right-wing face um, and a goody-goody face and a scoundrel face and so on. And um, uh, I didn't mean very much by it, except that I thought it was observable. Um, and um, I, I think I can usually detect it in, in, in real life, as, you, as it were. Very good actress, by the way, as I said, when I also made that remark. Uh, but I was, I was arguing about why I thought she was unsuitable to act the Queen. And I think that uh, actually I was right about that. I think good actress though she is, she was less good at the Queen than Claire Foy. You seem to have a thing about faces though. You said that Yvette Cooper, the Labour politician, was so boring you'd rather just look at her than listen to her. Um, Well, that might be true, mightn't it? Well, you wrote it. But I mean, why are you objecting? I'm not. I'm just wondering why you would write that about someone rather than analyse what they were saying. I think in, I mean, obviously, first of all, I should say that, um, you know, one is allowed, sometimes one gets it wrong, but one is allowed to be humorous. This is, these are these are light-hearted little points in Spectator Diaries or something like that. They're not deeply serious points. But I think all of us in encounters, or encounters with the human race uh, very much notice how other people look and behave and what their manners are and their mannerisms and their voices and, uh, and so on, their hair or whatever it may be. And these are... One can be very unfair about that, and I'm sorry if I have been, but um, I think that this is something in real human life that people observe and talk about and laugh about, and I think on that basis it's in principle legitimate. 
Well, were you being humorous? I mean, look, at Boris's, look at Boris's, you know, look at how could you not write about Boris without writing about his hair and his uh, disorder and his sort of um, sort of rather beefy um, appearance? I mean, it would be ridiculous not to write about that. Well, you sometimes feel that he's doing that, so you will write about it. But, <laughs> well, that uh, itself is interesting, of course. <laughs> uh, were you being humorous or serious when you wrote of someone, his face is that strange characteristic, quite common in Scotsman, of being composed of features out of scale with each other? <laughs> well, um, I, I know what you're referring to, Andrew, and you're referring to a, a description of you uh, that I put in writing. So if that upsets you, I'm very sorry. It's a long time ago. Yes, it is a very long time ago. I wonder why you bring it up. But I'm just well, well, only because I because you have a, had a tendency in your writings to what they would say in football: play the man rather than the ball. Um, I, I think, on the whole, I go to some lengths to be uh, fair to argument, but sometimes I lighten it by a bit of um, you know something else and. Um, uh, this is not necessarily justifiable, but it's not always wrong. You're a social conservative, uh, informed, as I understand it, by your Catholic faith. Have you changed your mind in a more progressive way on any of the great social issues of our time? Um, uh, not, not really, but I think I've, I've come to see the importance of some things more. Um, so, for example, um, at the time, uh, I was less alert to um, when it was more of a customary thing in society. I was less alert to the danger of um, making off-colour jokes about homosexuals, let's say, something like that. Um, I think one of the good things about modern culture is it has made people more alert to how... Um, uh, it might feel to be a minority of any description. So to be disabled, to be gay, to be uh, black in Britain or something like that. Um, I'm not at all in favour of group rights and um, identity politics, but I'm very, very much in favour of considering um, the feelings of people who may tend to be oppressed um, or feel uneasy in a society. And I think we've got better at that on the whole. I mean, you, you once wrote in reaction to Labour's plans to increase income tax that you, quote, you have to be very altruistic or stupid or homosexual not to object to these higher taxes. I, of course, can't remember what you're um, talking about. And um, one of the things, Andrew, you know, is that columnists uh, do and are supposed to do, actually, is create uh, controversy. And I s suppose the point I was making at the time was that if you're homosexual, which, by the way, isn't so true now, you didn't then have children, normally, and therefore you didn't have the um, worry about the expense of bringing up children. I think probably that was the point I was making, but to be honest, I can't remember. What about gay marriage? I mean, you said David Cameron would be haunted by his endorsement of gay marriage, but he wasn't, was he? And it's... Just an accepted part of the firmament now. Well, um, I think that these is, the way people react to these issues is very interesting. And I think people will accept um, all sorts of things they thought they wouldn't accept if, they, um, if it's handled in the right 
way. And on the whole, I think Cameron did handle it in a, in, in a good way. You um, wouldn't roll it back now, would you? No, 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 certainly I wouldn't. Um, uh, but um, uh, I think it, it does go to the wider point, which I think Cameron did suffer from and maybe did help to bring him down, uh, though certainly not on this particular issue, but um, that as a certain sort of social liberalism, which is sort of privileged and um, is to do with being uh, rich and being able to go all over the world and, um, uh, you know, that you can do what the hell you like sort of thing, which is very nice if you're in that situation, but annoying for people who are not in that situation. And that's one of the reasons that I'm uh, quite uh, social conservative. So, for example, um, to, in the old Tony Blair phrase about being tough on crime, um, it does matter more to people who uh, are poorer than to people who are richer because they can't buy their way out of trouble on the streets. Those sort of issues are actually very, very important. Um, and there's a certain sort of look at me, aren't I a good person liberalism, which is incredibly annoying for people if they're being mugged and robbed and um, uh, you know have to wait in enormous uh, shabby hospitals and so on. So, Charles Moore, you've had a long career. Eton, Cambridge, The Spectator, The Telegraph, now The House of Lords. Uh, is your trajectory as an establishment man now complete? What I am really, Andrew, is a journalist, and I suppose in recent years a historian, because I spent many, many years writing the biography of Mrs. Thatcher. Um, those are my prime interests. They always have been, and so they remain. And I'm very privileged to be free to express myself um, uh, in numerous forums, including this one. Charles Moore, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Andrew. Tortoise members and subscribers to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts can hear my reflections on that conversation in a bonus episode called Inside the Interview, which comes out every Friday during this series. You can join our newsroom for £50 a year by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash Andrew and entering the code andrewneal 50 that's five zero, and all one word. This episode was mixed by Studio Klong, with original music by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer of The Backstory is Lewis Vickers. Thanks for listening.